So Mark chapter 8 this morning, we're going to continue studying our uh, way through the gospel of Mark. We're going to wrap up chapter 8 this morning. And uh, let, me, uh, let me ask you this. Anybody like to save stuff? Chuck likes to save stuff? We all, in some way, we all save stuff. We all save something. We, uh, we save time. We try to anyway, don't we? We try to brush our teeth and put our socks on at the same time every morning, right? That saves time. Uh, am I the only one? No, I'm just kidding. Do you realize, have you ever tried to do something else while you brush your teeth? It just does not work, does it? You cannot focus on this other task, while, even if it could be done with one hand, or maybe it's just me, but I can't do anything else. I cannot get it done. Anyway, we try to save time. We try to save money. We try to save travel points and rewards points on our purchases, right? Uh, last week, we tried to save on our taxes, legal, legal opportunities. Uh, we like to save on gas right now, particularly. We don't go any places. We, we ride our bicycles now, maybe. I don't know, but we try to save on gas. We save our children's first blankie or, we, uh, or their first crayon artwork. Uh, we save that one till Jesus comes back. We like to save our pictures, right, on our phones. You got pictures like crazy all over your phone. We like to save electricity, right? We go around and we turn off lights and this and that and the other because kids don't, so we have to. Uh, we save a number of things. How about this? Do you ever think about saving your life? Well, if you, if you go to the doctor for checkups, that's a part of seeking to save your life, get healthy, medicines, minerals, vitamins, all of that stuff. All of that's a part of saving your life. But how about, uh, how about this one? How much do you think about saving your soul? It's one thing to save your physical life. Jesus is going to give us an incredibly hard challenge this morning about saving our soul and giving consideration to how we are saving the soul, our soul, that will live into eternity, forever. It's a hard-hitting message, so I'm just going to let you know up front that uh, uh, it, it's just there. It's from his word, and I'm going to do my best not to put Mark in the middle of this Mark into the middle of any of it and let the Holy Spirit speak to us what Jesus is saying in these moments. Now, if you will recall two weeks ago before Easter, and by the way, can I say thank you for... Uh, you guys got out there, man. You got the word out. There were folks all over this place last weekend, and it was our, our highest attendance we've had in probably four or five years now, uh, but just tons of new people, and you guys got out and invited them and, and welcomed them to Victory Family, so thank you guys so much for, for reaching out. Now, that tells us we have the capacity and the, the ability to reach more people, to, to grow our church, to grow those who are coming to worship the Lord, being saved, being healed, being taught, being transformed. Uh, we can do it because the Holy Spirit has them there and he has us here ready. Amen? Amen? But this message this morning, I told you two weeks ago, Jesus has now made a transition. The middle of chapter 8 becomes the changing point of the next seven and a half chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has been up to this point, two and a half years, has gotten us to the middle of Mark chapter 8. Two and a half years of the ministry of Jesus. He has been, uh, what did he say in Mark 1 that he was going to do? He had come to uh, preach the gospel, to uh, cast out demons, and to heal the sick. So he's been doing that for two and a half years. And it, what he's been doing by doing that is demonstrating his authority to as the Messiah. 
so that when he would say, I am the Messiah, people would believe in him. Though most still didn't, it was for the fact of demonstrating who he was and his authority. I have the authority to forgive your sins because I have this authority to heal the sick. Who else has that? Only the Messiah. But now he turns and he's got six months until his crucifixion. And so now he begins his journey from Caesarea Philippi. He's going to start heading his way back to Jerusalem because we know what we call the Passion Week from Good Friday to the day of the crucifixion. Uh, we call that the, the Passion Week. He spends seven days, one week in Jerusalem, uh, ministering, teaching. But everything at this point now is going to be focused on his, his death. So you remember two weeks ago when, when, when Peter pulled him aside, Jesus, for the first time, told his disciples, first time, we have it recorded anyway, he tells his disciples, the Son of Man is going to suffer many things and die at the hands of men. Remember, pull, Peter pulled him off to the side and said, oh, Lord, this will never happen to you. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And we clarified all of that. But now that's what his focus is going to be on. He's focused on miracles. He's focused on the manifestations. He's focused on teaching with authority. But now he's going to begin teaching the hard truth of the gospel. You see, it's, it's possible to have forgiveness of sin by believing. But believing translates into following. I'll show you as we progress through this here this morning. It's a very pointed message that Jesus gives us here now this morning, and he's basically drawing a line in the sand. And he is, uh, he's telling us that this is where the rubber meets the road. It's not the miracles. It's not the preaching with authority. It's not the feeding of 5,000 and 4,000. It's about following. It's about following Jesus. So let's take Mark chapter 8, and beginning in verse number 34, we're going to go through 38, but we're going we're gonna to break it up. So right now, we're, we're, gonna, we're just going to go verse 34, Mark 8, verse 34. Remember, Jesus, prior to this, has been dealing with just his disciples right there in the first paragraph. Now in verse 34, it says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, so there's the crowd of people, and then there's the close associates. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I think it's important that Mark designates that the crowd was there, too, because we could take this to say, well, it's the disciples. It's those who back in the early part of Mark, Jesus said, uh, leave your nets and come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And so we could associate that he's telling these guys, OK, now you're going to have to you're going to have to die for me. But it's important to recognize that he's talking to the entire crowd. He's talking to all who were here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So we're going to talk about three truths out of these paragraph, this paragraph this morning about following Jesus. And the first one is this. Following Jesus comes at a high cost. The cost of following Jesus is extremely high. Forgiveness is free because Jesus has done the work of shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. He has done the work. He has taken the punishment and he has taken our death for our sin upon himself. 
Forgiveness is free. Following Jesus, forgiven, will cost you everything. He requires everything. He says this. There's three statements he makes right there. and We could do an entire message, if not even a series, on just these three. So I'm going to try not to, to, to beleaguer the point on each one of these, but I, I do feel like we, we need to touch base on these three. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So let's, let's talk for a moment about that. He says, deny yourself. In other words, have nothing to want to do any longer with your old self. Now, we've talked last week at Easter, we talked the week before and a couple weeks before about being born again. That when we are born again, Paul says you're a new creation. Jesus says you're born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God now lives inside of you. When Paul says you're a new creation, the old is gone, then that means our associations with the old way of our living, the old mark, died. The old mark is no longer to be an influence to me. In fact, you know what happens when you're born again? The Spirit of Christ comes into you, and He gives you new desires. Remember I told last week, I gave a little bit of the testimony. You've heard it before about me playing the guitar and then uh, when I got saved. And, it, and it's, not like I, it's not like I didn't want to play the guitar anymore. It's just that the, the, the desire was taken away because there was a new thing God was going to do with me. And it was going to include a pulpit and, and not playing the music. I love music. Still have a, a guitar. But he changed the desire. So I didn't miss it. When I told you I'd play four hours a night in my room just practicing and learning, he just he gave me a new desire. It was a desire for his word. I sat in my room when I would normally be playing music, and I just consumed his, his word. He gives us a new desire. And so what Jesus is saying in denying yourself, you're, you're, you're refusing to go back to the old desires. Now, the old desires can still try to lure us. But the only power they have is if I choose to go back to them. They'll still try to rear their head. So Jesus makes it clear, look, you've got to deny those things. You've got to deny them. You've got you to live as though the past will no longer be your present or your future. So you're born again. You're a new creation. Deny yourself. Lose do away with that idea of living the old life. You see, one of the great fallacies we have in, in, in Christendom today is, is that many people will maybe pray a sinner's prayer or they'll, they'll hear the testimony of the Romans Road, the four laws of salvation out of the book of Romans, and, and they'll believe on that, but, but there's no change. There's, there's nothing that changes. You see, friends, Christianity, the Christian faith, is not just a religion. It's not like all the other world religions. The other world religions may change. If they change anything, they change the outside. You got to put on a garment. You got to grow your hair. You can't wear makeup. You can't smoke, can't chew, and can't go with the girls that do. It's got all these things that go along with it. Christianity is about a transformation from the inside. When David Wilkerson started the uh, Teen Challenge uh, Addiction Recovery Ministry, in the streets of New York back in the late 50s and early 60s. They, be had, they began becoming so successful at helping drug addicts. You know what his, what his plan was when he first started bringing these, these, these young people off the streets? He would sit in a room with them. He would lock himself and them in a room, and he would tell his associates, don't open the door until we bang on it and tell you to come get it. And David would sit by the seat, by the, by the bed of these heroin addicts. And while they're going through the withdrawals, he would pray over them. And he would just sit there by their bed and just read scriptures day and night until they 
had breakthrough. But what happened was in the 70s, they started having such success with the program. And by this time, you've had the revolution of the 60s and, and everybody's addicted to drugs. And so the government's getting in on the drug addiction game and trying to help people get off of drugs. And so they've got their programs. But Teen Challenge was turning in statistics that were blowing away the government's programs. They were... They had like an 80 to 85% success rate of young people never going back onto drugs. So the president commissioned a team to go study and find out what it was that Teen Challenge was doing that the government programs weren't doing. And what they came up with, the title of the report they laid on the president's desk was The Jesus Factor. The Jesus Factor seems to be the answer. And it is. What was the answer in your life? Maybe you weren't addicted to, to heroin. Maybe you weren't addicted to anything. Well, we're all addicted to ourselves, so we're addicted to something, right? What changed? What changed you? Jesus. It's always been the Jesus factor that makes the difference. And so Jesus says, deny yourself. The second thing he says then is take up your cross. Now, you, you understand that in, in the first century, those... Jews and Gentiles Jesus would be speaking to in that crowd, they understood the picture of the cross. Because the Romans by this time have perfected the means of torture and death called crucifixion. They have made an art of it, if you will. And so everybody knows when he says, take up your cross, he's talking about dying. Immediately, they know death. He's telling us that it's not about the miracles Though the miracles are awesome, it's not about the authoritative teaching. Though the authoritative teaching sets you free. If you know my truth, he says, the truth will set you free. But it is about the cross. So why Peter wanted to rebuke Jesus two weeks ago was because the cross didn't fit into his theology. For the next six months of his life, Jesus is going to make sure everyone who hears him understands the cross is his theology. The cross is the only way. The cross is the Jesus factor. So it's about dying to self, not only denying and refusing those impulses and those, those, those old desires and starving them out of your life, but it's about, it's about dying, literally dying. In Luke, when he records this teaching of Jesus in chapter 9 of Luke, he tells us that Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily. So here's where we may miss it some in Christianity in our generation. We go to an altar and we repent, or we, we somehow, somewhere, we, we repent and we turn. And, and by the way, don't you realize that repenting is denying the self, the old way? Because to repent means to turn. So if this has been my way, self-centered, self-rule, greedy, pride, arrogant, lustful, everything else, if this has been my way and I come to Jesus, I repent. I can't, keep, I can't grab Jesus and strap Jesus to me and keep walking this way. I have to repent. I have to turn. So repentance is a form of denying my old self-nature and my old impulses. But now Jesus says you've got to die. And so Luke says, look, that's not something or Luke records for us that Jesus is in essence saying. It's not just something that happened one time. It happens daily. Every day those impulses are going to try to be there. 
every day there's going to be some lure around us that tries to bring us back. And Jesus says, deny yourself, die to yourself, die daily. It's not just once. It is every day we make a conscious choice to live as dead men and women. He says, take up your cross. Paul understood what this self-denial was in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live. Yet it is not I who lives, but it is Christ Jesus who lives in me. Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. When Christ died and I came to Christ, I died with Christ. That's what water baptism is. In Romans 6, Paul would tell us the essence of water baptism is that those who have been baptized into Christ have died to themselves. That's why we take you under the water. We're burying, in a sense, the old self. He says, and then we were raised to new life. Paul says, I live like a dead man. Oh, I live, but the life I live is absolutely faith in Christ. So when Paul would spend so much time in prison, so much time under persecution, so much time in rejection, and so many things once he gave his life to Christ that were coming against him, this thorn in the flesh that God says, I'm, I can't take it from you, but my grace is sufficient. All these things he endured, he could endure them because he was dead. In his mind, he's dead. So prison doesn't bother me because I'm a dead man. Oh, but I live in Jesus. And Jesus lives in me. And me and Jesus can have a prayer meeting. And we can even write. We can even write. We'll just, we'll just write what's going to be called the New Testament one day. Or at least a bunch of it. While we're here. When you've died to self, so much of everything around you that used to irritate you doesn't have to irritate you anymore. When I die to self, I don't have to shoot off an email I may regret to text a person. I was having trouble dying to self, but t maybe that's why it happened. Maybe, okay, Jesus, forgive me. Maybe that was my life lesson. Maybe that was my sermon for me this morning. Paul wasn't concerned about these things happening to him because he was dead to them. Oh, yeah, they still happen. And the beatings that he endured, they still hurt. And the hunger pains in the prison with limited supplies of food, that, that, that's not pleasant. But he said, I've learned to be content in all things. How, did he, how was he content? Because to those things, he's dead. To Christ, he's alive. And Christ says, this is where I want you. This is where I am but I'm there with Christ. So Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. To follow, that word follow means to be in the same way as. So when Jesus says these words, he has now turned his face, in Mark chapter 8, he has turned his face toward the cross. So when he says, follow me, he's headed to the cross. And when he says, follow me, his call to all of us, and that's, that's the title of your teaching today, the call to all to follow. When he calls us all to follow, he's calling us to walk in the same way. Jesus lived as though he was dead to the things of this world. Oh, he experienced them. But he lived as though he was living unto God, the Father. 
He said, my will is to do the Father's, the Father's will. So following Jesus is costly and it demands an immediate response. There was an occasion in the gospel of, uh, Gospels where uh, Jesus encounters three individuals who want to follow him. And one of them says, uh, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus lets him know right up front, look, here's what you need to know. The cost is high. We don't even have a place to sleep at night. Son of man has no place to lay his head. Are you willing to pay that kind of price? Are you willing to give up the luxuries and the, the, the pleasuries, pleasantries of home and, and life and the comforts of life? That's what he was asking. Another one said, hey, I want to follow you. Or Jesus says, I want you to follow me. And he says, I will, but, but I've got to go home and bury my father. Now, does that not sound noble? I've often wondered, why did Jesus have to be so critical of the man not going back to, to bury his father? Well, think about it this way. If in their culture, if the father's already dead, then he's already been buried. Perhaps it is that the father was near death which in that case makes a little bit more sense because what Jesus is saying is, look, you don't have time to wait for the inevitable. Let the dead take care of the dead. What he's saying is this, this is immediacy. It is immediate that you follow me now. And then another guy, he calls and Jesus calls him and the guy says, well, I, I need to go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, no, you, you can't put your hand to the plow and look back. So what's wrong with family? Nothing's wrong with family. Everybody loves family. But what Jesus is saying is, you're going to go back and you're going to get distracted. And the last thing your mama's going to want you to do is to pack up and follow some guy who people claim is, is the Antichrist, basically, and, and Satan in flesh. She's going to try to talk you out of that. Your dad's going to try to talk you out of that. Get you a job, son. Don't be going around like that. Your brothers and sisters, they're going to try to convince you. Your wife is going to try to convince you. It's immediate. It's now. It's now. And it must be a full-on commitment to follow Christ. That's the essence of what Jesus says. If you're going to follow me, and where's he headed? Well, he's, first he's headed to the cross, and from there, where's he headed? To the Father. And how does he tell us we're going to get there? Following him. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we're following Jesus to heaven. And he says that begins by denying self, taking up your cross, and then choosing to follow me. Let me ask you this morning, are you counting the cost? Are you counting the cost? We sang about it this morning. Come, Lord Jesus. And the only thing I could pray was, Lord, make me ready. I don't want to presume anything, Lord. Make me ready. So let me ask you a couple of questions about counting the cost to deny self, take up your cross, and follow. Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing some of your closest friends? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means alienating yourself from family who might reject you for your faith? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your reputation amongst friends and others? 
Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your job? These are where the rubber meets the road questions. Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your life? And there are numbers of folks around our world today in countries that don't have a freedom to join like we are here today who do, who do give their lives, literally give their lives. So believing translates, believing in Jesus translates into following Jesus. To believe, the word believe means to commit. When you look up every place that Jesus talked about believing, where you read about Paul believing, those who believe on him will be saved. That word believe, one of the definitions of it is the word commit. Committed to the cost of following Jesus. Do I believe Jesus enough that I will pay the cost to commit to following him? Second truth that we read about this morning is this. The conviction of following Jesus is unwavering. It's unwavering. We pick up in verse 35. Jesus goes on and he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is one of the great paradoxes of the gospel. Much of Jesus' teaching was a paradox. The opposite of what common culture was. You want to you receive, what does he say you do? You give. It is more blessed to give than receive. Your enemy curses you, what are you to do? Bless them. You want to be great among people, what does he say to do? Serve them. You want God to lift you up with his mighty right hand, what does Jesus say you do? Humble yourself before him. And this is one of those great paradoxes. If you want to save your life, you got to lose it. That, that makes no sense, does it, to the common mind? We've spent years before coming to Christ trying to save our life. Multitudes around the world live every day, day in and day out, with the pursuit of saving their life. Whatever that looks like. More money, more friends, more esteem in the community, higher positions, higher recognition. Whatever that may be, we have spent so much time saving our lives that Jesus says, if you try to save your life, you lose it. You lose it. You lose your life in the process of trying to gain the esteem and the respect and the positions and the money and this and that and the other. The paradox is if you're going to if you're going to make it and save your life, you're gonna to have to you're gonna to have to lose your life. You're gonna to have to give your life up. Some people read that passage and they, they take it as Jesus is telling us to lose our life, to serve him, to to do great humanitarian social justice types of things that, that we're giving our life. We're we're turning off the TV and we're gonna go out and we're gonna we're going to help the hurting and help the homeless. And we're going to do this. And, and that's not what Jesus is saying. Those are noble things and those are good things. And he may very well put into your spirit that you are to do those things. 
But what he's calling us to here is a giving up of our lives. Giving up our very, our very soul for him. Not just to serve doing noble things, but in lordship. Giving our lives in Lord, over to his lordship. Verse 36, he says, What does it profit you if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? Can we talk about the soul for just a moment this morning? Of course, we, we understand there's places in the scripture that talk about the soul consists of the mind, your will, and your emotions. Bottom line is, and even secular psychologists will tell you this, the scriptures reiterate that your soul is you. It's you. You're a body, and you, you have this, this earth suit, if you will, but the real you is how you think. Because you could have an identical twin, spitting image of you, and you could both think differently. You could both experience life emotionally different, and you could even choose things in life, your will, differently. Your soul is the real you, and your soul with your spirit lives forever. I'm going to throw this in as a side note, that some young people, particularly, and well, now they were young in the day. Young is a relative term now, Tom, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm what I used to think was an old man, and here I am. But I'm convinced 61 is the new 30. That's what I keep telling myself anyway. Um, but some people have the idea that when you die, you die. But the reality of what the scriptures teach us cover to cover is that, yes, your body will physically die, but your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions will live somewhere forever. Let's just be blunt. It's heaven or it's hell. So when you say, I'm going to live like the devil now because it isn't going to matter when I die, no, it's really, really, really going to matter. Because you are going to be quite cognizant of the choices you made and the consequences they have now brought. You will be quite aware of the complete, absolute, utter darkness that you are suspended in forever. The complete absence of God is what makes hell such a dark place because there is no light of any influence of God. You think our world's a dark place now. The reason it's not completely dark physically is because the Holy Spirit is still here. Through who? His church. So we will live somewhere for eternity. So let's talk about the soul here just real quickly for a moment. Jesus says, is it worth gaining the entire world and losing your soul? In other words, having your soul condemned to an eternity in hell. What if you die with all of the money in the world, but you lose your soul? What if you get that one relationship, that one relationship you've longed for, and, and yet it, it leads you to lose your soul? What if you become the MVP or the 10-time gold medalist and whatever, and yet you lose your soul? 
What if you climb the corporate ladder and you've come from maintenance to CEO, but yet you lose your soul? What if you achieve every dream you've ever dreamed and you're living the dream, as they say, but you lose your soul? Here's my question. Is it worth it? And Jesus says, absolutely not. That's what he just said. It is not worth it. So then in verse 37, he says, what can a man give for his soul? Do you realize the reason your soul is so important, your mind, your will, and your emotions? Because it's you and you're valuable. What's the value of your soul? Jesus says, what can a man give? A man can't give anything for you. His soul is so valuable. If he obtained all the riches of the world, he could not save his soul. Because the soul is so valuable. Let me, let me show you a couple things about why your soul is so valuable. One, it's because your soul is measured in eternity. Your soul is so valuable because you get a lot of mileage out of it, right? You see, you pay less money at discount tire for 20,000-mile tires than you do for 50,000-mile tires. The reason you pay more money is you're going to get more mileage. The reason your soul is so valuable is because it's going to live forever. And so it's of great value because everything else is going to rust, corrode, and fade and crumble. Your soul is valuable because it's measured in eternal quality. Secondly, your soul is measured because of the supply and demand. The supply and the demand. We're pretty familiar with that right now, aren't we? They tell us that the reason gas costs so much is there's less supply. They tell us the housing market in the Metroplex is so crazy and, and values of homes so high right now because of the demand. Everybody on the West Coast is moving here and there's not enough houses and the houses that go up for sale get a lot of money because somebody wants them. Somebody wants to live in the Metroplex bad enough that they will pay a lot of money for a home. I'm pretty sure that a couple months ago, I paid too much money for an old rusted out, beat up horse trailer for Jack. But my research online showed me that they were going like hotcakes. <laughs> and everyone I called, I was the guy that missed that one. And the one I was trying to get, had a, I was at the top of the list of 10. But you see, it's value is, is placed on supply and demand. And the devil's after your soul. Because you are the apple of God's eye, you are made in his image, and Satan has struck out from day one to destroy the image of God. And he started with Adam. Because he, Lucifer wanted what God had, that's what got him kicked out of the, the heavenlies, according to Isaiah. And so then he struck out at the next best thing, and that would be the human that God put on earth in his own image. And then he gave dominion of the earth over. And because Satan wants you, and there's so many other demands, everybody else wants a part of your soul. Madison Avenue is trying to grab your attention. Hollywood's trying to grab your attention. Wall Street's trying to grab your attention. Everything's trying to vie for your mind, your will, and your emotions. The end cap at the grocery store is vying for your attention. 
You didn't go in there to buy lifesavers, but doggone it, if you didn't walk by them and realize you needed lifesavers. Last chance, about to check out, you better get your lifesavers now, right? Everything's vying for our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions, and it makes it more valuable, all the more valuable. And then another reason, another thing that adds to the value of your soul is that it's measured by the security of eternity. It's not only measured by eternal value, but it's measured by the price that has to be paid. You see, your home for sale might not really be worth five, might not be valued at 500000 but if somebody's willing to pay 500000 that's the value. What do they say? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Value is in the eye of the buyer. If you don't think, if you don't think a house is worth $500,000, you are not going to buy that house. But when you do, that's its value. And God looks at you, and he values you enough that he pays the ultimate price, the highest price possible. God puts on a human body and comes down here and dies. He's got angels in heaven surrounding him and celebrating him and bowing down and worshiping him. And he comes down here to be rejected, to be beaten and crucified, all to pay the price for our soul, that we could be with him for eternity. Your soul is valuable. He values you enough to pay the ultimate price. So Jesus says he gave his life for you in order that you could that he could gain your life. He gave his life for you that he could gain your life for him. So he says, what are you going to get? What are you going to hold on to that's going to save your soul? And the answer is nothing that I can hold on to is going to save my soul. So then he says, good. Now that we understand that, deny yourself, take up your cross, and let's hit the road. Let's make this journey to the Father together. Then let's turn, let's go to verse number 38 now. Look for our third truth. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. So think of this for a moment. In the moment, with everything vying for our soul, whoever is ashamed of me, he says, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes, when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is returning. There's no question about that. But the question is, is where am I on all this paper up here, Tom? There we go. Jesus is coming again, and he says, if when, I, when the Son of Man comes, if you've been ashamed of him. Now, think about this. When Jesus came the first time, you've heard me say this, over 300 prophecies were fulfilled at the first coming of Christ, all the way through to his resurrection. Job had even 
prophesied that. He said, I know my Redeemer lives. Do you realize Job is the oldest book in your Bible? Genesis is not. Genesis goes all the way back to the beginning, but the oldest written book is the book of Job. And he even knew, I know my Redeemer lives. So 300 plus prophecies were fulfilled at the first coming. Can I tell you this? That's only one-third of the prophecies that are in the Bible, Old and New Testament. That's only one-third of them. That means there's still two-thirds prophecies yet to be fulfilled. When will they be fulfilled? Starting at the second coming of Christ. So that means there's 600 prophecies that are going to become fulfilled. Now the question is the second coming. When is that? And to that, we don't know. But I will say this as a preface to all of the rest about what we're, what we're about to talk about, is that there is nothing left to be fulfilled before the next set of prophecies begins their fulfillment. The only thing we are left with is Jesus says, this gospel shall be preached to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. So some might try to track it and say, well, there's tribes here, and there's villages here, and there's people here, and they don't have, and we need to get the gospel to them. But can I tell you that, that when Jesus says this gospel shall be preached to all the nations, there is one way it's going to happen. And it is when he cracks the eastern sky. And when he cracks the eastern sky for his return, everyone will know. Everyone will see and everyone will know. He's coming again. The first time he came as the lamb. For salvation, not for judgment. Remember John 3, 16, God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. Verse 17 says he did not come to condemn the world. Jesus came to save the world the first time as the lamb of God. Second time he's coming pictured as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's not coming to save anymore. He is coming to judge. He's coming in the second coming to judge. And it is then that every knee will bow. Every stubborn, rebellious heart will have to acknowledge Truly he was who they said he was. Every knee that is already bowed will be rejoicing. I'll show you that in, in just a moment. You see, we know that at the cross, the love of Jesus was fully displayed for us. And I will go to my grave preaching the love of Jesus for every single one of us, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done. And at the cross, we find the grace of God, and I will carry that one and preach that one to the grave, that God's gift to us is His Son, Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness of sins. Amen. But we cannot, we cannot discount the fact that He is a just God. And by His nature as a holy God, who sin cannot even dwell in the midst of, he has to deal with sin. He judges sin. For those who will believe on Jesus, he judged Jesus for our sin. For those who reject or are ashamed of the gospel of Jesus in our generation and reject that, they will be rejected at the second coming. I don't, man, I know that's not popular. I know that's not popular. I know that's not the message of the hour that we hear so much, but church, it's, just, it's right here, and we, we can't deny it. We, we, I mean, here's the really, really good news. Get it with Jesus. Strap Jesus on today and go for it. It doesn't have to be doom and gloom. In fact, I'm, I'm not sad 
that Jesus has to return. I'm looking for that moment. And I'm just asking Jesus, do everything you absolutely need to do to make me ready. We have to accept that he's a, not only a loving and gracious God, but he is also a just God. Let me, I'm going to give you a few verses here as we prepare to close. So that was my prayer. I'm not closing. You didn't hear me say that. So but I'm going to give you a few references here for just a moment this morning about the coming of Christ. Because we have to have this, we have to have this as a part of our, our bedrock. The good news is only good news when we understand what the other side of that is. Revelation 22, verse 12 and verse 20. Jesus says this, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. He who testifies of these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. How does he, so he says, I come with my reward to, to give to each person according to what they have done. You and I know, I've taught this before, and it's in the, in the letters to the Corinthians. Paul writes about a, a day and a moment at the coming of Christ that we are in his presence, the blood-washed, blood-bought, redeemed children of God. We're in his presence, and we are having, celebrating with him what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is no judgment there is no judgment for those who have accepted that Jesus took our judgment for us. The judgment seat of Christ does not judge anybody to eternity in hell. It is simply, if you will, the awards banquet for life. It's where we receive our crown. It's where our works are tested. What did we do with Jesus after we received him and were born again at such a glorious high price? What did we do with our lives? In following him. Did we deny? Whatever we didn't deny, it's going to be revealed. Whatever we didn't die to, it's going to be revealed. Paul says it this way. Some stuff's going to pass through. Everything's going to pass through the fire. Some of it's going to be like wood, hay, and stubble, and it's going to burn and fall off to the side. That's the works of the flesh we did after we were saved. Then there's going to be precious stones and jewels, and they're going to survive the fire. Those are the things we did out of obedience. Those are the things we did with right motive, not for self, but for, for the Lord. And then that's what we are rewarded. Paul says in that passage, Paul says that uh, uh, everyone will survive the fire that goes through that, the judgment seat of Christ. Some not as well as others, not with as much left to show for it as others, but he says they will. But then there's the great white throne judgment. That is the one where when you arrive there, everyone whose name is not found in the book of life, everyone who did not have a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, finds himself at the great white throne and for the works they did because they didn't take Jesus' price and judgment for their sin. They will be judged by the Father. You still with me? Still glad you came today? Okay, we'll carry on. Matthew 24, Jesus says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Talking about the second coming. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Why are they going to mourn? Because they now know he was who he said he was. And we missed it. We missed it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He goes on in verse 31 right there in Matthew 24 and says, And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect 
Who are the elect? Those who responded to the call to follow Jesus. He will gather his elect from the four winds, that means from all the nations of the earth, from one end of the heavens to the other. There will be a group at the second coming of Christ that grieve and mourn and gnash their teeth. And there will be another group that is taken with him. When you read in uh, Thessalonians, when Paul writes about the coming of Christ, he says, at the trumpet blast and the call of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those of us who are left will be caught up with them. That's where Paul gets that. That's where Paul gets it, right there. Jesus said he will collect the elect to bring them with him. The elect, I said, is those who are saved by him. Luke chapter 12, verse 40 says, Jesus, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20, uh, verse 5, 2 and 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The idea there is the urgency. Remember the three individuals that were supposed to follow Jesus, but they all had an excuse, and Jesus wasn't being mean to family, and he wasn't being mean to the dead father. What he was saying was it's immediate. You don't have, there's not time for that. There's something pressing that is of eternal importance. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 10. And give relief. He will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with powerful angels. The fire representing his judgment that is coming on the earth when he comes. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord from the glory of his might, and from the glory of his might. And on the day he comes, he will be glorified in his holy people and will be marveled at among all those who have believed. Again, there will be those mourning and grieving the coming, and there will be those who are rejoicing. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Believing the testimony of Jesus. He says, if you're ashamed of me and my word. In other words, if you reject Jesus now, you're rejected at his second coming. It's, it's so cut and dry. To believe, I said earlier, means to commit. It's one thing to, to say you believe in someone or something. It's another thing to actually commit to it. Okay, I've told you before. Based on engineering and proven experience, my good friend Jim Fry has proven it over and over in his military days. You can jump out of an airplane with a parachute and you can land adequately and walk away. I believe that. I can't deny the truth of the facts, but I'm not committed to it. I'm not committed until I take a step out, until I strap on a, uh, a parachute and take a step out. I can say I believe in Jesus till I'm blue in the face, but have I committed myself to deny, die, and follow? If I haven't believed to that point, I'm not truly believing Jesus. I'm not trying to stand in judgment this morning of us at all, my friends. This, this teaching is very humbling. For me as it is for all of us. How do I commit to following Jesus? I deny self, die to self, and make choices daily to follow him. 
Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. I am going to close right here. That word ashamed is derived from a word that has several different meanings to it. One of the meanings has to do with imposing. The idea of being ashamed, imposing upon. If we feel like Jesus' teaching and the the call of Jesus to deny is imposing on us, can I just say it is? (laughs) Exactly why he came. To impose upon our self-rule, his lordship. If I feel it's imposing and I reject it, then he's not going to let me impose upon his glory when he returns. That idea of ashamed also carries with it the idea of position, something above. If there's something in my life above Jesus, then when he comes, there won't be anything for him to take. He says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. And I, I, man, Jesus, give us, give us grace. So I'm going to close with these four questions by way of application. And I want you to give them consideration before we close. First one is this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? Don't answer out loud. This is a reflection moment. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? And the second question to that is, does your attitude toward yourself and Christ reflect what you believe? Does your attitude toward yourself and Christ reflect that you believe he is the Messiah? Follow-up to that is, in what way are you denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus? And the last one, when Christ returns, Will he agree with your previous answers?